group set out to do 230k today, you're going to do it no matter what. That's for me. That's just a personality trait. But it also reminds me that you and I, throughout a season, we had, as you said, so many mental bullets where we could reach the limit maybe twice, and th- and that was enough. If we were hitting that limit, you know, every six or seven weeks, that would just be too much. So we sort of knew when to to reflect and when to pull back a little bit throughout the season. But at the same time, I think you kind of enjoyed getting to there because you knew you'd worked hard. And when you get to that point, and then you could sort of relax knowing that the hard work is done, but we've reached our limit there. How did you know when I'd reached that limit? When I would get those phone calls <laughs> of you out on the bike and you'd leave those video messages basically <laughs> abusing me, <laughs> asking questions. And I thought, okay, now it's time to review the training. <laughs> you had to wait to get the call. I had to wait till the girls had left the room because I knew there'd be some nice colourful language in it. <laughs> I can't do this. I'm too f-ing fatigued. I can't just have one day off and suddenly go out and rip one minute intervals. I can't even hold 600 watts. F-ed. That was the most beautiful thing about the relationship, I think, about the the coach writer relationship and I've, I've stressed this with a lot of people I've spoken to maybe not so much on the podcast but if any young guy asks me about coaches whatever I said it's sometimes for me it's not necessarily about the science obviously that's a massive part of it but it's about the connection mm-hmm. um, and that's something that you and I were able to have that I could speak openly and honestly to you and it, I felt like I, I hope I wasn't complaining every other week but when it came you knew all right this is this is real isn't it no look it's a mutual respect because if I'm going to ask you to go and ride seven hours in the rain tomorrow i need to have a damn good reason why you're doing that and Mm. for you to have that confidence and trust that yeah there's a reason i'm doing this i'm going to go get it done it's just a a big respect from my side as well Well, you were just listening to the episode of Life in the Peloton that was last week, last Wednesday, the first episode of 2022, brought to you by our new sponsor, Rafa. This is Talking Luft. This is also brought to you by Rafa. They're on board this year. Really excited to have them on board and really excited to learn more about the RCC, the Rafa Cycling Club. So we're in here at the Rafa Clubhouse in Melbourne center of melbourne i'm sitting here with albie the coordinator of the rcc the rafa cycling club tell us a little bit about the rcc what is it what makes it so special what makes it different anyway well the first point of difference it's a cycling club but it's a global cycling club you know simon Mottram, sort of founder of, of rafa sort of had a vision of sort of trying to connect people obviously there's a lot of things that go with the, the rcc but it's about building community and building you know friendships rides events and it is special in the way that it is a global sort of connection with other clubhouses, but also what we call satellite cities as well. So the main sort of thing is, is trying to really provide that platform where someone new can come into the sport, join the club, meet new people, go out riding. And it's a combination, our members are a combination of someone new coming into the sport, someone that's been out of the sport for a little while and doesn't want to start racing. We're not a, we don't hold races as such. So some of our members do race, mm. but it's, it's all about sort of just getting together and join riding and just the love of the sport really. Getting out there and, and during COVID, it's been amazing seeing the explosion of, of the sport, the popularity, seeing new people come to the sport, seeing new people join our rides in Melbourne and seeing them being integrated with a group of guys and girls that sort of well-established within the club and now see them out on the, you know, that they're feeling quite confident out riding and, and being a part of that sort of group, you know. 
Like I said before, this is Talking Luft. I'm sitting down with Alan Aquani today. Because I'd already been on Talking Luft, because Kev has already been on Talking Luft, I thought, how about I speak to Albie, Alan Aquani, about how to not train like a pro. Well, actually, he's Talking Luft. He's perfect for this because he was a pro, yet he's still awesome as a rider. I'm like, I've been training with him the last little bit, and I'm thinking, you've figured out how not to train like a pro. You're flying, yet you're working full-time at Rafa, and you're riding, and you just, he gets it. So I was like, you're perfect for Talking Luft. So I sat down with him. This is Talking Luft. You're probably wondering what that is. What is Talking Luft? Well, it's Luft is the air between the, the top of your head and the cap, the way you wear your casket. Guys like Miguel Ingerain, he had a lot of Luft between his head and his hat. That was the style back then, how you perch that casket on your head. So we started rolling, talking about Luft, talking about caps, and it just morphed into this whole talk about cycling style, cycling culture, and just interesting things. That's what Talking Luft is. Normally what I do is, when I've got a guest on, I get them to back up with a Talking Luft, and we find a little bit more about them. The DVDs extras, I like to call it. When you used to have DVDs and they'd have that extra disc where you used to be able to find deleted scenes and that sort of stuff, that's what Talking Luft is. It doesn't really have much to do with anything, but it's always a bit of fun, something entertaining to listen to. Talking Luft's going to be rolling this year. Like I said, Raf is a proud supporter of Talking Luft, and I'm wrapped to have them on board. So guys, without further ado, sit back and enjoy the first Talking Luft of 2022. Alright, so we're sitting here in Melbourne, Guildford Lane. This is the Rafa Clubhouse, Melbourne Clubhouse, the first time I've been here. And I'm sitting here with Head Honcho, ex-professional, ex-Australian <clears throat> champion, Albie Aquane, Alan Aquane. Mate, welcome to Talking Loft. Well, I've got to say, it's an honour to be on this this podcast. I've listened to your podcast. I've listened to reruns of it, so it's, it's a real privilege and an honour to be asked to come onto it, so... Thank you. Hello. I'm happy to have you on here and I thought you were very appropriate for this episode because How Not to Train Like a Pro was our first episode last week. I was thinking, who'd be great to get for Talking Loft? And Albie and I have been doing a little bit of riding over the summer. He's been a professional. I want to talk a little about who he was before, but now he's been for a long time keeping fit is a really understatement because he's race fit. He's always good. He's riding nationals. He's putting me to the sword out along the loop, the long rides. I'm thinking, hang on, this guy knows how not to train like a pro and stay amazingly fit, plus work a full-time job, plus do whatever else he does. So he's appropriate. I'm going to give you a little bit of background about Albie. He started riding when he was about 15, 89. Fast forward to 1994. I wouldn't say surprise winner, but against the odds back then, he won the national titles up in Maroochydore against the likes of like Nick Gates was second. But in those days back then, Albie, from what I understand, it was a bit like there was this secret crew, the start of the VIS, the Victorian Institute of Sport, training with the famous Davo Sanders. And you guys were building this little force together to go against the AIS and also the Jayco team. Tell me about it. Yeah, it was a special time, I've got to say. And, you know, uh, we had a strong group of guys that all lived close together and we trained our asses off, you know. 
it was through pleasure doing it. And Dave, I had some sort of, I remember doing a motor pay session. We had a, a, uh, a Glen Maggie, he had a property in Glen Maggie. It's about 180K. We used to ride down there, do a bit of a, a training block and then ride back. But one year he had, well, this 94, he had a, a grand idea of riding down, motor pacing, having a massage and then riding back in the same day. So it was a close to a 400K oh my day. Gosh. What so was we, the idea behind that? Just Davo, just, just hard Davo, up. just, I think the old, bit of old school sort of, you know, guys used to do that back back in the day. People used to ride, you know, ride ridiculous kilometres. So let's, why not sort of do this? But it was with the idea of motor pacing. So the motorbike broke down actually the first 100K. So we had to ride that sort of pushing the wind ourselves. Then we got the van in front of us, got down there and then motorbike got fixed and then we motor paced back. So it was a lot quicker. And then we raced the next day at, um, they used to race at VFL Park. Yeah, there's only four of us that did it. Um, Matt Gould, uh, Robbie Crow, and Wayne Kessel, and myself. It was a pretty special day. It was pretty cool. It's a real weeding out process, and even I got a little bit of the tail end of Davo, and I love that sort of process. It was just a bit of a hard, like you said, hard man mentality. If you're still there at the end, you can continue. Yeah. Well, you went on to sort of ride in and out of Australia. You rode overseas for about nine or ten years. Um, you ran Linda McCartney. You had a bit of a bit of an unlucky spell with a lot of teams folding. You know, picked up, and then you actually—I don't even know how to pronounce the name of this team. The ah, uh, check Z Wustenrot. Yeah, Wustenrot. That's the way I yeah. said it anyway. Yeah. And then you went to I Team Nova a couple of years there, Giant Asia. Then you disappeared from the sport. Um, back in those years too, if everyone's wondering, like he was second in the Sun Tour to the likes of Baden Cook, third in Lane Cowie overall. And I had a look through some of the names there: Levi Lipimer's there, Michael Barry. You got. Andreas Taffy just rolled Taffy, you know, when, <laughs> just as you do, Map A teams there. So, like, he's putting some serious guys away, has some time away from the sport, comes back, gets involved 10 years later, well, a little bit less than 10 years, gets involved in the cyclocross scene, and then sort of appeared for me, because that's sort of when I was starting, when you stopped, about 2-4, I sort of got into cycling, and then about 2-14, I saw you at the national championships. Didn't know any idea who you were. I was starting to ride on Green Edge then. And I was like, who is this guy? He's in the breakaway with me. I'm like, would he just get dropped, this old guy? And so what I want to ask is, what brought you back? You know what I mean? Why did you want to come back? And what was the motivation there? It's a good question. Um, so I had five years out, just quickly sort of, just the sport sort of ended quickly for me with, with sort of a team fold and with uh, I team Nova Flanders and then meant to be sort of racing again. The contract sort of ended at the start of the year. So I was a bit sort of disillusioned with the sport and sort of had five years out where I, I had a job. I'd studied a little bit, walked dogs for five years, then sort of started riding in with a group of friends that have a local team here, O2 Racing, and they're great guys and they sort of sort of encouraged me to get back on the bike and was having fun just riding and doing some local crits and then I sort of started a coaching business with Dave Macker, who, who was already, Dave McKenzie, who was already sort of established and I sort of um, took off from there and had my own sort of business really. And I was riding a lot because a lot of the, the coaching I was doing was on road. So I was keeping fit and then I found Cross and I just fell in love with it straight away. I ended up winning it. So I was like, this is awesome, you know. Mm. Who would think, you know, 20 years after winning a national title in, on the road, I've got another national title. And I was like, I'm going to race the nationals because it's a great story, you know. And I was work, I was an ambassador for Rafa at the time and doing a lot of stuff with them. And we thought, yeah, let's just, I'll train up hard for a couple of months and see what happens. And I was really nervous that race because I didn't know if I was going to get shelled on the first lap or second lap so i was didn't know what to expect after what was it racing. like first and second lap because notoriously first and second lap in the australian nationals it goes straight up a yeah pretty much an eight minute climb 
So if you either got to find out then and there if you're in. Yeah, I can't remember what that first initial lap was was like. I was just trying to hold position for first, you know, first time up, and it's quite narrow. So I was probably down the back a little bit, but then I sort of made my way, and it was just holding position, holding position the whole time, and being in a bigger bunch. Obviously, riding crits is one thing, but being in a bigger bunch again was like really, really quite foreign mm. and odd. And I just sort of tried to just keep on marking moves. Just I don't know what I was thinking. Just thought getting the break, you know. And then when that break, final break, did form. I think it was Matty Goss and Heyman were on the front and they were sort of about to sort of call it, you know, and I was like, this is my chance. So I jumped across. I was one of the last guys to get across, I think. And you were obviously there um, and Willie Walker was in there and, you know, Willie, you know, had his issue with his heart and almost died, which is yeah. another story in itself. <laughs> yeah. And I was just like, this is amazing because you guys were just drilling it, yeah. you know, and there was four of you guys, I think, in Green Edge and then three drap pack or the other way around. I thought, I'm just sitting on, you know, I'm not going to do anything. So... I don't know if you recall, but um, Steele was was in the break, Van Hoff, and they, I was getting a lot of cheers from the side with Albie because, you know, just having been around a little bit and just having some local guys down there cheering away. And Steele, I remember, he's like, they think you're Albie Davis. And I'm like, no, nah, mate. <laughs> <laughs> I was before Albie Davis, you know, this is me, you know. Um, oh. And I was just sort of sitting there as long as I could, you know. I was thinking it's going to happen soon. And it happened on the, you know, four to go, I sort of, and then three to go, the bunch came through and, and left me like a, a stone. But um, I managed to finish and it was quite like, this is amazing. Great. Mm. It's, it's, it's awesome. And I was, I was a bit like Steel too because, I, like I said, I was like, God, who the hell is this guy, you know? Because um, yeah, yeah. you did know everyone. You thought you did know everyone. Um, and so for you to reappear, it was a new peloton, a new time. As funny as it was for us noticing you, I'm sure it was funny for you being in. Was the racing different when you came back? I Definitely, you know. Um, from when I stopped in 04, the Nationals were obviously a hard race still, and but the level just seemed like it was it was next level. Mm. It was like a you know a European race in a in a way. Not the depth wasn't there as much, you know, but they were definitely racing fast and hard. And I didn't know really anybody apart from sort of some older guys in there. So on that perspective, however, I was always keeping my eye on on results and sort of you know mm. knowing who was sort of going well, especially following. Uh, Green Edge and Jerry Ryan and that progression of like Australia's got a world tour team like mm. who would ever thought when I stopped like he was also sponsoring us back in you know 03, 04 with iTeam Nova and sort of he's been a big player in the sport from way back in 94 with the VIS and so I was always sort of following that you know uh, progression of, of Green Edge with Matty Wilson and Cookie and those guys you know so I had those guys there but um, yeah it was yeah special day. Just before we get to Talking Loft I know everyone's waiting, but I could not ask this. But what in this period, when you did drift away and you're walking dogs, as you said, you had a dog walking business. Were you riding? And if you were riding, then what was the motivation to keep you sort of out there training or riding? Was it a social thing? Was it just trying to be a fit guy? How many hours were you sort of sneaking in? What was the whole in that in between period? Because that's something I'm coming to at the moment. Is like, okay, I don't need to ride for a profession anymore, but I want to keep fit. What's been this over this, I guess, the last 15 years now, your motivation to go out riding? I think for me it was a completely uh, different story maybe to yours. Um, so when I stopped, I pretty much went cold turkey. Mm. I didn't ride for good close to five years. However, when I did stop, I probably, I said to myself, I'm probably not going to ride for five years, but I will start riding again. And it was kind of, I needed that five years just to decompress from everything, I, I think. And then the opportunity not the, so much the opportunity, but um, the desire to sort of start riding again was there. It was always there, 
you know, I'd walk dogs along Beach Road and see the sport sort of just get bigger and the amount of bunches and people sort of riding down along Beach Road was nowhere near it was when it was when I was sort of riding. So I sort of, it was always there, it just needed the right opportunity. And then once I started, it was kind of like a, you know, a fish to water in some ways and just trying to sort of get as fit as I could for the first year, you know, lose a little bit of weight. And then it was like every moment I could, it was kind of like finish work. Maybe I can go for a ride. I can sneak a ride here, sneak mm. a ride there. And, you know, it was an, not an obsession, but it was kind of like just a consumption of back when I first started riding my bike, you know, finishing school and wanted to go for a ride. You know? yeah. So I found that love for it straight away, you know. And then Cross helped me in that way. Cross was a, an interesting one because you, I, I sort of would see it in, in Europe, but I never really give it, gave it much thought. And I wish I sort of started it earlier, but. It was something that just you have to practice to get better. You got to practice, mm -hmm. you know. You got to practice in the grass, in muddy conditions, and technique, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, I just found it a, a really nice way to sort of just keep motivated. Was go off to a park and practice jumping on and off your bike and mm. put setting up, you know, cones and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, and I still love it, you know. And and it and it sort of cured that competitive edge, you know. There's one thing going out for rides and a few bunch rides, but there's nothing like when you put that number on again. You know, oh, okay, it's on. Here we go. This yeah. is real. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't like I was. I didn't want to do any road races. That was, you know, it was like, and I still really don't want to do any. Well, I don't want to do any road races, but pinning a number on for cross um, was something completely different. So mm. I was sort of, I was in a different mindset for that. And even now with mountain biking, sort of dabbling a little bit with Wade, you know, the last few years has been the best fun. And I, I see it as racing and competitive, and I think it, it eases that sort of side of it, you know, that competitive side. And that's why I sort of just keep on keep on riding and, and keeping fit, I think. I don't train as such. I don't, you know, have a power meter. I don't look at any of that kind of stuff. I do have a power meter now, but all it tells me how how many watts, how many watts mm. I'm not pushing, not, you know. <laughs> how many watts I am My left green. and right is all wrong and all this kind of stuff, my power balance. But, um, you know, it's, so it's, it's about sort of just finding what you like and, you know, enjoying it that's what you got to do awesome all right well let's get into some talking loft this is the part that you know this is dreaming part. of who'd ever thought all right so this year i've separated it into four topics well it could change who knows at yep. the moment it's four topics style Oof. bikes culture and about you Ooh. so we'll start off with style and in typical talking loft fashion you got to start with caps caskets Cycling caps, capolinos, whatever you want to call them. How do you wear yours, Albie? Do you wear it forwards, brim down, brim up, backwards? Give us your style, mate. Uh, I'd have to say, I'd, you know, I was, wouldn't say fortunate enough, but, you know, I grew up in a time where you didn't have to go training with helmets in Europe. Well, you still don't, but most people still wear them and it was accepted that you didn't go training with them. So, out training, I'd definitely just wear a cap forward with a bit of luft. I've got a bit of a pinhead. This mm -hmm. has been discussed before, so I can get a bit of luft Perfect, on, out yeah. of my caps regardless of size but um generally when if things were going fast i'd flick it around oh and have it sort of peek back but then you know flip the peak up at the back and i, f I found that gave it a bit of downforce so that kept it on your head <laughs> yeah right so you had it straight down if i've lost a few caps by looking around and then the wind flip gets underneath off. off it comes so it works like a fender yeah yeah car yeah. fender yeah, yeah right yeah nice. i was always going super fast you know <laughs> discuss this with alvi as in alan davis as well so you guys are similar in such a fact he was the backwards with the peak up too yeah I, you know that that's the way it worked for me 
So, yeah, peak forward for, for getting around, you know, sunglasses on top generally and then, you know, caps have become a big thing over the years and uh, I probably don't wear one as much, as often as what I used to, but I still still like to collect them and mm. Rafa's got a huge collection of, of limited range, limited edition stuff. So I'm They do, I can see them right here as we're sitting here, some nice yeah. caps, missing a life in the pillow up there actually, aren't they? They're hard to get. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you've already sort of answered it. If you could have raced back in the day without a helmet or trained back in the day, your style would have been, it sounds like a backwards cap with a peak up. Well, did you have anything else? You weren't, you weren't a headband man or snag helmet? No, just no, cap. Never had a snag helmet, never had a headband until now. But yeah, racing with a helmet back then was a bit crazy, really. You know, mm. you think without, about yeah. it. Bonkers. And some of the days where you had sprint finishes, you know, teams would go back and, you know, guys with the dummies would have to go back get helmets and stuff and... And if you miss that boat of when it was going really fast, it'd be like, miss the boat, I'm not going back, we're going to lose our position, we're all just wearing caps, you know, or, or nothing, you know. You know, I would never rode for massive teams where you had someone sort of always going back for you that could do that in an instant. So it's kind of like, if you miss that boat, in, you know, it's like when it's going fast, it's like, I'm not moving from here, you know. Yeah. This is... Safety second. Yes. Race <laughs> win first. Yeah, definitely safety second. Do you still shave your legs? I do. I do for a little while. I didn't. I've, I've let them grow a little bit over the last few weeks, but yeah, shave them. What's yeah. the reason behind that? Just because my hair, I look like a woolly mammoth if I let them go. If I had sort of blonde hair or something, I could, wouldn't mind a bit of, you know, your hair that, you know, while you're I've shaved. shaved, mate. Yeah. I went for a while without shaving it. Yeah. And same thing. It's, it's all vanity. I was it like, is. it's not for, I can't pull the I like massage. The yeah. <laughs> I can't pull the massage excuse anymore. Now, that it's doesn't work. just because they look better. Yeah, yeah. I, I definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. Glad we cleared that up. Do you wear X-Pro kit or do you like new wave stuff? Uh, it's all new. Yeah. It's all new. I'm very lucky that I work for a company that has new um, kit. And But they, you know, obviously we have different ranges and I do like the classic stuff and the Explore range. And But I still wear pro team stuff when I'm racing, doing the crits and mountain biking and all that kind of stuff. Mm. However, on, on the Belgie, which you obviously know, some people might not, they have a Christmas Belgie and that's about bringing out anything old, anything mm. unusual, anything with a story. So I, I brought out an old jersey that I had from a race in Spain. So yeah, it doesn't With the numbers still pinned on the back. This is a bunch ride in Melbourne, great little bunch ride. I'm going to be a podcast about it eventually, but there's a Christmas one where you bring out the retro kit and you had a jersey still with the numbers on it. I love that edition. Yeah, it's it sort of, I pulled it off my back and went in the washing machine. I didn't have to wear it again, so I thought it was the last stage and yeah, the numbers stayed on. Let's do a next topic, bikes. RMG, road, oh. mountain bike or gravel? One bike. I've said this to a lot of people, it'd be a mountain bike. Mm. Yep. I agree. I'm I'm thinking, Lockie Morton said that too. Yeah. Just, I think I'm at a stage where the, you know, done a lot of road and it still gives me a lot of pleasure and i still love riding it uh gravel as well but the mountain bike just in the in the parks you get it go to a good park and you can take a mountain bike anywhere as well mm. you know you're just going to be a bit slower out on the road i don't mind doing that so definitely mountain bike yeah social bunch or hour of power <laughs> cross is the hour of power and it is a violent sort of hour or effort if no one's ever done a cross race or um yeah, the social bunch, you know, I'd have to say just, but I do the social bunch so I know that I can do the hour of power. All right. You know? So, I'd, uh, yeah, that's a tough one. I'm, I'm going to have to, can I pass on that? You go halfway, right. Yeah. Okay, you've, you've justified both sides. Yeah. Do you have a Strava account? I 
do. I only have two rides on there. I don't really look at it. I don't, you know. So you don't hunt, hunt KOMs? Definitely not. Yeah, no. right. No. Favourite training loop of all time? And, and explain <laughs> the loop because someone out there is going to know it. What's your loop, Albie? Well, the loop that we just, we did, well. Or the did, loop. The you loop. Could, the loop you're putting in there, well, right. Cool. Es- like it. Essentially, it, it takes in three training grounds of, of Melbourne. This is, uh, so King Lake area, um, Mount Donabuang. Um, and the Dandenong's Jembrook area. So, you know, back in the day, you'd, you'd either do one of those sort of areas during a train, training ride, you know, from where, you know, inner city Melbourne. And we did an event a few years ago called uh, Rafa Rides, and I thought, why not just do a big massive loop and try to take in all those three areas and, and see what happens. And so now every year for Festi 500, I kind of have a ride that tries to take in that sort of those three routes. Um, but also it changes every year, a bit of gravel, is thrown in there this year got got um unstuck jez hunt you know unfortunately come to grief but it was still a big ride you mm. know it was still a massive ride and it was a super hard day so um, i couldn't have done any more than that for me i was on my hands and knees it was 230 for me eight hours or eight and a half hours in the saddle i was big day in trouble but you yeah you're on those big fat mud tires you, you told know? me it was a gravel ride yeah <laughs> there's about 2k of gravel yeah. in this loop bit more than that no yeah. a rider comes towards you are you a wave guy or are you just a simple head gesture uh, what's love, your action i love the wave depending on where my hands are on the bars or how hard i'm going try to give a wave however melbourne is increasingly busy beach road or wherever you go um sometimes it's it's more of a nod you know just a bit of a give them sort of that recognition and sometimes i might miss it all altogether. oh miss you know, it yeah you know, it happens. There's Purpose miss, is it? Yeah, oh, here no, he comes, no, Docker. No, never, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, mate, didn't uh, see you. Yeah. Nah, you, you know, you might be talking to someone. Yeah. If you're by yourself, I tried to, you know, but it's definitely a wave. You've got to try to give a wave or a bit of a finger. Okay. You know, you know when you're driving the country, you give the, the one You're not hand. The, the full hand off, you know? If, I, if it's someone I know, you know. If hand you're off even the lean back. Mitch. Yeah, right. <laughs> Your best bike of all time, all those bikes you've ridden over the years, what was that one that you think about? You go, you know what? I know it's probably not the fastest one right now, but I love that bike. What was it? It could be right now. Yeah, look, uh, obviously, um, I have a, a, a giant and the, you know, the, the best bike is the, the bike you're riding because um, that gets me around. And However, the one that I sort of have an affection with, and it probably wasn't the best bike in the sense of um, – how fast it was a, a Joss or Gios mm. for a Spanish team I rode for a couple of years and at the time that sort of it was a steel bike you know it was awesome that blue love color love that color blue as well so they used was, to have the the chrome fork as well didn't they yeah. straight fork or even campy was it oh we did have campy yeah yeah, yeah campagnolo yeah. Yeah. yeah so it was yeah chrome fork with chrome lugs as well so it was mm. a beautiful bike it was pretty heavy I don't know they might have made mine out of bloody copper pipe who knows steel but, I think yeah. it was but um, but I was fortunate enough with Rafa. We had a continental a team called a continental, which was sort of uh, and everybody got bikes built for them. And I got a Pisoni made that's a hand built Italian titanium mm. bike, and I still have that bike. That's probably is that how you say it? I've always pronounced it Pisoni. It's Pisoni, is it? There's Pisoni, then there's Pisoni. Oh right, though, in, sorry. In Melbourne. Australia. Oh right. So he was hand, you know, used to hand build bikes, and, and um, so there's Pisoni, then there's Pisoni, right? Which sorry, is an Italian Italian brand that's been around for years. They used to build bikes for some of the pros back in the day when Titani was sort of in the 90s. I think Kiapucci might have even had a Pisoni because mm. some of their team bikes and Pantani possibly. 
This cool. is yeah, correct me if I'm wrong, please. Well, I didn't even know about it, so I'm not going to be able to do that. But yes, yeah, someone out there will. Let's move to culture. Favorite race? Could have done it. Could not have done it. You might just. What is that favorite race for you? Uh, look, I would have loved to race the tour, any Grand Tour. You know, um, that's the, the the pinnacle of of being a professional bike rider. I think. Um, so that never eventuated. But as in favorite race to 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 watch now or to. Lombardia is sort of oh, uh, Lombardia. Pretty, yeah, yeah, yeah. Pretty special race, I think. Only because it's in it, it's in Italy. It's towards the end of the year. It's got lots of climbing. It's very picturesque. However, watching the the classics, you know, you can never go wrong watching the classics. Um, you know, watching Flanders, Roubaix, all the early, you know, Het Volk. Well, now Gent Wevelgem. Well, now we've got to narrow it down. You've said a lot of races. What is your favourite race that you did then? Back in the day, I did the Peace Race a couple of times. And not many people know the Peace Race, but um, it was quite a big race. It used to be a big amateur race back in the day, but then they sort of brought it together. And um, I was 16th overall on, on GC. That doesn't sound like much, but it was a pretty amazing... Um, it's in Ireland, isn't it? Is no, nah, Germany, oh, Poland, Germany. Oh, right. Czech Sorry, Republic, yeah. kind of in that area. But um, Stefan Westerman won it from Telecom, and he I think he went on to... I think he was second Flanders that year. I was riding well in, in sort of the front groups and... You know, that was in 2003 that year. Uh, so th- that was a result. It's, it doesn't seem like much, but it's, it was mm. sort of a, a special race because it's a super hard race. A few others, I don't know. I'll have to have a bit No, of I said it. one. Okay, yeah. Give me your whole bloody list yeah, of sorry. top 20. Favorite rider of all time? It'd have to be Kiyopucci, Claudio Kiyopucci. Yeah. yeah. Favorite rider right now? Oh, uh, oh look, Vanderpol's. Like you like, I like watching him him race as as well as Van Art, just because they've come from this cross background. But they're just super talents, you know. Mm. Um, and you know they're riding up the sort of play, they're tearing up the playbook a little bit and sort of attacking early. And that Amstel win that he had was oh, yeah. absolutely yeah. awesome. That was know? awesome. Yeah. War story. So one of those days you've just had could be just like one of those Davo stories. It could be also. You know, Lang Cow, it could be even a Sun Tour, it could be whatever. One day you just know, you know, you know what, that bloody day, what is that day? There's plenty of those. Um, they all sort of meld into one. I'd, I'd have, uh, the, the, probably the worst day I've, I've ever had on a bike was um, Tour of Austria. <laughs> <laughs> Beautiful, of course. Yeah. It's a bastard of a race. There's just, the flat stages have got climbs in them, you know. Yeah. Um, and I was just not in great form. Came back from a, a big training camp in, in the States. Uh, this is 95. So with the amateur team. And I just, I got shelled on the first climb, like 10K into it. I sort of made my way back into the sort of the group, chasing through the cars, get shelled again. And then went over another massive pass. Um, and I was last, dead last on the road. I should have just pulled out, but I was, you know, determined to get to the finish and had to get over like this 20K climb. And I remember riding so slow along the retaining wall. I was almost pushing myself Oh, yeah. I, you know, I was trying to sort of... With your arm. You know, yeah. yeah. And it was just a horrible, horrible sort of day and sort of descended down into the finish and, you know, just... Any cars following you at that point? The sag wagon? The sag wagon was very much, you know, like... Get in. Get, you know, yeah. What are you doing? But that impressed me too much and you know, got to the finish, got stopped by a train coming into the finish as well. Like, people are packing up and it was just... <laughs> I was like... And Davo, he came across and he was doing a bit of DS work for the national team and... And it was a year after I won the national, so it was a bit of it. It was he was gutted that I was to sort of see me in, in that kind of a, a, a state, I suppose. And I was, you know, obviously I got eliminated. 
<laughs> but the next day they went up the Gross Glockner oh. in the snow. So I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> dodged a bullet there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, nice. All right, about you. BWS, beer, wine or spirits? What's your poison? Ah, look, you obviously can't have all three, but it does have to be beer, I think. Yeah. 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 You got As a go-to, you know. You got anything straight off the cuff that you, you're drinking right now that you like? There's lots of... Yeah, it's whatever sort of I come across in the bottle store. I do like a lot of Bridge Road, um, all their beers. You mm. know, Ben's an awesome guy and I love sort of uh, what they do with their beers. You know, the beers we had the other day after Moretti, you know. Mm. Time and a place. Yeah. Every beer's got yeah. a time and a place. Yeah, yeah. Good call. Yeah. What coffee do you drink? What's your coffee ritual? You start with like a milk coffee, move into espresso after 12, Italian style, or you're a bit more of an American guy, do, you know, filter. What's your coffee movements, Albie? Yeah. Um... I used to carry around a little gadget machine to Europe back and forth. It was big enough to put into a handheld. So I was right into sort of coffee at, at one stage. Whoa, and, back in the day. Yeah, this is back in the day. I, I found this coffee machine in Italy and I bought it. Little uh, electric, what? Yeah, electric sort of. Auto just espresso a, machine. No, not an auto thing. You had to sort of tamp it down and all that kind of cool. stuff. Cool. I thought it was, it was quite heavy. It was made out of like this brass kind of sort of looking thing. So I would sort of carry it around from season to season with me and, you know, just plug it in. It was small enough, you know, it's so big and. But I didn't know what I was doing with coffee. And then eventually that just sort of stayed at home. I still got it at home and I'd love to sort of get it going. But nowadays, I've got a little stove pot in the morning. I grind my little coffee, like a little hand grinder. I have a stove, a stove top sort like of coffee. Like a mocha pot, a yeah, Italian yeah. style, yeah, yeah. yeah. Italian style. Black, milk and milk. sugar. No, oh, milk, milk and sugar, sugar. right. Because I have sort of like, it says the two cupper, but it's mm. really one cup. Yeah. You know? And then I'll sort of move on to a latte after a ride or something like that. And then maybe a couple of espressos during the day. Yeah. yeah. Nice. But yeah, no milk after midday, you know. No, yeah, good. Of like to hear that. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite cross training exercise? Do you have one? No. Walking dogs. Walking's great. Yeah, just down in Tassie. Just recently, we did a big walk down to uh, Fortescue Bay, Cape Fortescue, or whatever it was, Fortescue Bay. Yeah, it's amazing. Walk. Yeah, hiking yeah, and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I talk about having a bad back and all these things. Oh, my back's crook. My back's crook. All I got to do is stretch, and I don't do any of that. So. <laughs> <laughs> My own worst enemy for that. I could fi- I could fix that, I'm sure. Most rewatchable race. Oh. Well, there's lots, you know. There's lots. Um, Give us your top three. Top three. Right. Talking of Claudio Cupucci being sort of a bit of an idol. Um, 92. Wait, wait. Give us your top three and then we can talk about one. Right. All right. Crossworlds, 2014. Sven Ness and, and um, Stiebart had the... the Battle of the Titans, as they call it. One of the best cross races ever. Absolute awesome race. Yeah. They just, boxing gloves are on. And everybody, that first lap is just bonkers. Watching Matty Heyman win Roubaix, I know it's not your uh, favourite race, but I mean, your favourite race, but not your... Uh, 216 Paris-Roubaix. It was yeah. 216. Yeah. Oh, sorry, 216. Yeah, sorry. Yep. Yeah. I was in a pub with a heap of guys from St. Kilda Cycling Club down at Prince of Wales, and it was, it was momentous, you know. So always, you know, watching that race is, is gives you goosebumps, especially the story behind it. You know, his crash coming back uh, from injury, and then there's this stage that just sticks out of all the great tours that Indurain won, and that sort of early '90s was Kiapucci on a huge solo breakaway. Yeah, stage 13. There are certain days in the cycling season that all professional riders live in fear of. Today in the Tour de France, we find such a day. And look at the rhythm of this man. She really is going well. 
fantastic tactician I suppose because he always causes everybody by he always takes everyone by surprise they know he's going to attack and he always manages to get the gap I don't know how they let him go away every day well I think it was you earlier today who told me of a lovely little quote from Miguel Indurain he told us the other day he said I suppose Keir Pussy will attack me going downhill or through a tunnel uh, because that's Indurain's indication that this man has no respect for the leaders of the Tour de France he just attacks when he feels like it he's no tactics in mind no strategy he just gets out and rides his race and this is another example of how this man uh, just goes out and attacks when he feels like it he's been out front since the race began today he went over the top of the Col des Cécis the first climb he was the leader there he went over the top of the Col du Roselon and that was in a small breakaway group and now on the giant of them all the Liseron he has gone clear on his own and as you can see now the crowd appreciating it as he comes up to the last 400 yards this is what the crowd have waited for now the waters part as Keir Putty heads towards the final kilometre banner that's what he's been dreaming of for the best part of five hours today and even the race referees are now in the way because the crowd cannot get back far enough and look at this I've never seen this ever in a Tour de France we've seen the crowds come close on Alpe d'Huez but never this before now as they welcome the Italians to the summit they've gone totally wild the Italians this is what is known I think as invading the pitch he got slowed down a little bit there by 10 or 15 seconds but he's got away again I don't think there's going to be any problem behind here's Miguel Indurain he's not going to catch him but what a fantastic finale for Claudio Chiapucci I think it must be like running across Wembley Stadium greatest victory in his career there'll be no doubt about that as he kisses the crowd and salutes them he can't even hold his body off the bike for the salute he's so tired almost eight hours what a day and listen to the crowd Claudio Chiaputti is home the clock starts this is the man who will claim yellow let's talk about this because yeah. I found this the other two are great too but I feel like this is one from the archives I didn't know about it went back and had a watch of it the other day it's five coals they finish up um, in Italy they finish up the um, Sestriere Sestriere and Kiapucci he just goes early and um, Injurain is heard saying in an interview that Kiapucci has no respect for the yellow jersey or whatever the leaders he doesn't care he just goes on the attack there is no he just he just goes after it and it's just an epic stage. Epic. Epic. It, and that was in the days back when we were just starting to get coverage of the Tour de France, that half-hour sort of highlight package on SBS. And I think it was pretty much come straight from uh, whatever uh, station in, in the UK with Phil Liggett. Channel and 4. Channel and 4. you know what music they used for the intro? Pete Shelley's yeah. Tour de France theme, which is used on this podcast so that's why i also loved it when i was watching it before i was like oh this is just right isn't it yeah no it's pretty good and and sort of watching those highlight packages we're we're so good because they'd always throw in a, a bit of music with it mm. and it just sort of makes it like a doco almost like yeah. a, a movie yeah yeah and it's, it's just a stage and the stage you know i've never watched the stage from you know i don't think it is out there from start to finish because You'd, you'd have a couple of naps in between, you know. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he goes on the rampage and he then he goes solo after the first call and it's basically a big 200 or 220K solo. It's seven hours 44 for the winner. I, I got, this blew me away too. It's, and the stages before this were 240K, 250. They had a 60K, 66K time trial in there. Yeah, um, individual. Just ridiculous. <laughs> like, 
Yeah. yeah. Wait a sec. Let me just say, stage 10, Roubaix to Brussels, 160, whatever. That's yeah. normal. Brussels to Valkenburg, 200. You know, Valkenburg to Koblenz, 206. Luxembourg, 65K TT. Luxembourg City, 217K stage. Strasbourg to Mulhouse, 250. Then there's a 260. You don't see those kilometers in the tour anymore. And these no. stages, like, I just couldn't believe that. For the winner was doing 744. What am I doing? Dropped. <laughs> like, I'm doing eight and a half, nine. Yeah, that, that, that was, yeah, quite quite. The tough. crowds. What about oh. the crowds at 1K to go? Like, we see crowds now. I've never seen yeah. crowds like this. He, yeah, the, the, he, was, he got slowed up by the lead motorbike. So, he goes around them and he's pushing through the crowd. It's <laughs> yeah. not the motorbike he is. You know, it's just immense, immense. And I remember just watching that as, you know, a 17-year-old or whatever, you know, just before dinner. And I was like, this is just off tap. And, and then uh, when Injurain's coming through, he's got the epic luft. Yeah. His hat is yeah. just perched yeah, yeah. on the top of his head, <laughs> sitting right back in the saddle. They say on, and Phil Liggett says on there, he's a 80-kilo rider, yeah. and he's rolling <laughs> up this climb, and he's pushing through the crowd as well. Yeah. No, it's, it's amazing. The way riders looked on the bike, positions have changed over the years. They're just all stretched out, long, behind the bottom bracket. You know, they all looked looked awesome. Yeah. yeah. 92, 992. I'm going to put the link up on our um, show notes. 92, stage 13, Tour de France. Check it yeah. out. Yeah, it is, a you know, one of the special ones of, of all time. Last question. Best thing about riding a bike? There's lots of things, obviously, but just the freedom, just that feeling of just being out. And, you know, when you're riding, you don't really have too many cares in the world you know you're worrying about where you're going if traffic or whatever so there's those issues but it's just that freedom i think you know mm, awesome yeah it's could go a lot deeper into it but pretty easy you know? cool mate well thanks for being on talking loft thank let's, you for having me on awesome let's go have a coffee and then go for a ride let's do it Well, that was Talking Luft. Albie, tell us a bit more about the RCC and some of the perks. There's half price coffee that sort of comes with it in clubhouses and, and we have a huge extensive list of partner cafes around the world. You know, so there's a multitude of things that sort of come along with, with the RCC. But my, I believe it's all about sort of trying to build that community. You know? And that you can travel around the world too and feel belonging and not come to a new city and be like, where the hell are the bunch rides? Where do I even go? You can just feel part of the club. You feel like you're a part of that club anywhere, well, not yeah. anywhere in the world, but a lot of places in the world. Yeah, yeah. And it is special. For people that travel, obviously, we have members that come in from overseas and interstate and, you know, come to the clubhouse and, and ride with us. And they might sometimes might not ride with us all the time, but they definitely uh, feel a connection with a city that, you know, otherwise wouldn't, they'd mm. sort of probably feel, you know, alone in that, you know, as where we, we bring them into the fold. Yeah. Show them the good roots. Yeah, yeah. What do you guys think? I hope you enjoyed it. If you're a first-time listener, I really hope you enjoyed Talking Luft. If you haven't heard that episode, go back and listen to the first Life in the Peloton episode. That was last week, Wednesday. Go and check that out, How Not to Train Like a Pro. Next week, we've got an awesome episode, Stuart O'Grady. Talking to him was mainly supposed to be talking about his transition and what he's doing now as a race director at the Tour Down Under. But I couldn't ignore his career And it's a bit of a long one, but it was just so good talking to him. So next week is Stuart O'Grady. 
He'll be on Talking Luft as always. Make sure you go back and check out the archive too, because the whole archive is up there. Go back and check out some of the old episodes. I've been filtering back through some of the episodes too. I don't know. I just must love the sound of my own voice, but some of those old episodes are great. I was just listening to the Triple T Giro episode. Such a good episode. That was two years ago. We did that in COVID, the lockdown, when the Giro didn't happen, and I listened back through that episode. This episode was brought to you by our title sponsor, Rafa. Go and check them out, rafa.cc. Guys, until next week, thanks for listening. I'm Mitch Stocker. Cheers. The music in this episode was composed by Pete Shelley. Cheers, mate.